0: James chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, unable to also bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole body as well. Look at the ships also. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the way it convicts us and the way it shapes us according to your will. God, may you be the pilot who's driving today. May you steer our minds and our hearts. And direct us especially toward you, toward a place of humility, toward a place of being receptive, toward a place of being molded and shaped by you, being molded especially into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. I want you to consider for a moment the impact words have had in your life for good or for ill. Perhaps you can think of positive ways that people like your parents or your children or your loved ones have spoken to you in a way that's encouraging and, and life-giving. When, when somebody you care about looks at you genuinely in the eyes and says, I love you, I love you, that's, that's very meaningful, it speaks deep into our hearts. We, we all remember, I pray, I hope that you've had an experience where you can think back to your, your parents who looked at you genuinely and said, I'm proud of you, I'm proud of you, I'm proud of what you've done. Perhaps you've had encouragement from somebody close to you who says, hey, I know this is hard, but you can do this. I believe in you. People who have spoken words of, uh, of affirmation that say, hey, you, you got this. You, you got this. And they encourage you. Words have such a powerful way to, to build us up and help us do things that we didn't think were possible. But perhaps even as I say that more quickly, you can think of the other side of those words, can't you? Unfortunately, the, the, the negative words often leave a, a longer and deeper impact in our lives. Words like, you're a failure, or I hate you, you're ugly, you're a disappointment, I'm, I'm not proud of you. I, the, the words that if somebody have spoken to you that, that leave a, a piercing place in your heart and can leave a scar, leave something that, that takes a long, long time to heal. We, if we think about it for just a moment, we know, The power of words. We know the impact they can have in our lives, and James reinforces that in a pretty significant way. If you've been following along with us in James, by now we've come to expect James doesn't hold back anything. (laughs) He he doesn't hold back any punches. He says it very directly and very much to the point. And so as he comes to the impact of our tongue today, we can expect that same kind of directness. From him. Last week, at the end of chapter 2, James was talking about how our works are the evidence. They're the proof of our faith. That if we just say with our mouths we believe something, but our actions don't show it, that, that, that what we say from our other mouths apparently isn't true. But what he's saying here now as we come into chapter 3 is that one of the, way, one of the, the actions, that's the evidence of our faith, is how we speak, especially how we speak to one another he gives a pretty stark warning, I think, uh, right here at the beginning, uh, that is important for me as I am teaching and preaching to you, that he warns us, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So I was reminded, as I was kind of shaking my head about this, that he doesn't say nobody should be a teacher, so I'm I'm not doing something wrong here, but he does say that we should be careful, we should be Slow to take on that position. Matthew chapter 12:36, verse 36, Jesus said, "I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak." So James is emphasizing here the same thing he learned from, from Jesus, that if we're going to be judged for all our words, then be careful of putting yourself in a place where you speak a lot of words. That's why I try my best to write down everything I plan to say, so that I'm not speaking careless words. You know We've got to be careful about how many words or what we say with our words. So be careful of being a teacher. But these words here about our words don't just apply to teachers. They apply to all of us. So I think in the rest of this section, we'll see three different warnings he gives us about our words. And each of those warnings has an application. But then I think at the end of it, we'll see one clear application for all of us at the end. So three warnings and one application. So the first warning is this warning, our tongues are powerful. Our tongues are powerful. Down in verse 5, he says, The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. It is small and yet boasts of great things. And here the word great is not necessarily a synonym for good. It just means large, big things. Your, your, your tongue is very small, and yet it does very big things. It is a small muscle in your mouth, weighing only A few ounces, measuring maybe an inch and a half, two inches by a few more inches long. It is proportionally to the the rest of your body is a tiny fraction of your physical being. And yet it way out punches its weight in what it does and what it accomplishes. This passage, James is really good about using all kinds of illustrations all the way through. But this section of verses especially is filled with all kinds of images and he uses two very powerful ones here, two very powerful metaphors, as we think about the power of our tongue. And I've got new friends here visiting us today who are horse people. And so I told them beforehand, hey, we're going to talk about horses. I don't know what I'm talking about with horses. But James uses this in a very powerful way, talking about horses. Verse 3 he says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. So I don't know horses, but I've been around them just enough to know that these are majestic creatures. If you've been up close and personal with a horse, you know, they're just so powerful, beautiful animals. And you, you get a sense for, for their size when you actually ride on one. Something about getting actually sitting on a horse, you realize just how big of an animal this is. And as they, even just as they walk, you get a sense for there's a, there's a healthy fear that's there. Because if they decide to do something, you're, you're just stuck. You're just along for the ride. And so I I went with one time, uh, was watching somebody give instructions about how to ride a horse. And this this man was on a very well-trained horse. And with just very small movements of his hands and his hips and his feet, he was was leading this, this enormous and beautiful horse to walk forward and backwards, spin this way and that. It obeyed everything he did. And that was lots of training, lots of effort, I'm sure, went into that. But he was guiding him with reins and just a little bitty bit in his mouth. This beautiful thousands of pound animal guided by a very small piece. The same thing he says is, is true of ships. Verse 4, look at the ship also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. I don't know how big the ships were back in ancient times, but we have at least one account of a shipwreck, in axe, where everybody survived and, and uh, as Paul was on that ship, and he records all 276 people survived. So it's got to be a big enough ship for 276 people. It's a pretty big boat. And, of course, today our biggest ships are like small cities, the thousands of people. And back in the ancient times and still today, the, the, the metaphor is still true. This enormous ship is guided by proportionally a very small rudder, a really small piece that's underneath the bottom of the ship and toward the back that guides and directs it. Wind pushes on top, the rider, the, the rudder goes along the bottom, where the pilot decides to steer it, directs the course of the ship. James's metaphors of a bit or, or a rudder are about the power of our tongues to direct us. The tongues have a disproportionate impact to your life. Think about the, the, some of the biggest muscles in your body, like your, your leg muscles, your quadriceps. Compare the size of your quads to, the, to your tongue, I mean, surely your leg muscle is dozens of times bigger than the muscle in your mouth. And yet I would argue hun- your, your tongue has uh, an impact hundreds if not thousands of times more on your life than what your quadriceps can do, right? Our, our tongues have a tremendous impact in our lives. And notice what he says about the way that the bit and the rudder represents our tongue, the, the rider and the, of, of the horse and the pilot of the ship represents the way you use your tongue, how you use it. So what does the the horse represent and the ship represent? It represents your life. It represents the course of your life. Your direction is directly related to what you do with your tongue. How do you use your words? What is the impact of your words in your life? When you think about the most important relationships around you, your family, your loved ones, your kids, your parents, when you think about the way you, you have your job, Whatever your job is, there's probably some kind of communication involved. Depending on what you do, it could be a different level. My job's pretty dependent upon communication. But your job, I'm sure, communication is involved. So many things that we do are, are centered around what we do with our mouths. They're powerful. Small, but powerful. It's easy to see that the impact of words when it's on a big scale, like a national scale. So take any president of the United States, probably any, any global leader, but we'll take our country or, or any major politician or major celebrity, they can, with a few words, whether it's in a, a news conference or a, a tweet online or, or any kind of press briefing or just in a, a random microphone stuck in their mouths as they're exiting an airplane, they can, just with a few words, make an impact on the stock market for the day. They can send countries to war. They can do things that seem to outweigh. They haven't done anything. They just spoke. And yet the entire, you know, some global industry will change the way they ship something because of what one leader says. We can see that on a national scale because of the audience they have that just a few words have a big impact. But don't think that just because you and I don't have that platform that our words don't have a similar impact. They, our words may not change the world, but our, world, our words may change somebody's world, right? The people that matter most, the people that are closest to you Just a few words can have a dramatic impact in their lives. Do you recognize the power that your words have? When I was in college, I had this one opportunity to drive a 2007 red Corvette. There's probably other details if you're a Corvette person. You would include right here if you were describing this car. I don't know this car. I think I was told it had something like 400 horsepower. And I only drove it in the city limits of Spartanburg. And so I probably never got above 40 miles an hour, plus I was terrified, like driving this car, one, that I would wreck it, and two, that I feel like it's this big red flag to every police car that goes that sees me like, hey, watch what I'm about to do, you know? So the whole time, I never got above 40 miles an hour, I was freaking out, but I felt like I had a lion by the collar, and I'm trying to restrain it down to 40 miles an hour. I mean, I felt like if I just, you know, slipped just a little bit, it was gonna be going like 90. I mean, just incredible power behind this motor. Do you know that in your mouth, <laughs> There's something far stronger than a Corvette engine. You have a power in your words that goes far beyond the power of any car. We, many times, underestimate the power our words have, and we let our words fly here, there, and otherwise, not recognizing the power that they have. We've got to be careful. We've got to heed the warning. Your words can be used for good or for ill. Recognize the power they have. And James warns us that many times it is not toward the positive direction that our words are used. So his second warning is this, warning our tongues are destructive. The second half of verse 5 we read, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. This continues what James has been saying about how something small can have a big impact. But here the impact is not positive, it is negative. It is dangerous and it is destructive. Warning, your tongues on their default mode are destructive. Many of you remember back to the, the fire that was in Gatlinburg, the Pigeon Forge area back in 2016. Uh, I looked it up because I remembered how, how devastating it was. 14 people were killed. 191 people were injured. Uh, 17,000 acres were burned. 2,500 homes were destroyed, and the estimated damage was around $2 billion. Do you all remember that fire that happened? It was devastating. The conditions were uniquely challenging. It was an incredible drought, kind of a historic drought. The winds were whipping up upwards of 70, 80 miles an hour. But the, uh, I looked into how, how it started. Where did it start? Because I couldn't remember. And charges apparently were dropped because there was no real way to fully prove this in a court of law. But all the officials were pretty convinced that the way it started were a couple teenage guys we were walking along a wooded path and playing with matches and just dropping lit matches as they went. And the conditions were just so bad that a, a, few, a few lit matches, they weren't even building a fire, they're just dropping matches, led to all that destruction. One match, it's 14 people's lives, billions of dollars lost. In the wrong conditions, our tongues can have that kind of impact. Maybe not, maybe not billions of dollars because we don't have that kind of platform, but in people's lives, individuals' lives, our tongues can be that destructive. Do we recognize the power that they have? Verse 6, he says, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The word for world, there's where we get the word cosmos. Like the whole, you, you got a universe worth of evil that you could release with your mouth if you are not paying attention. All kinds of evils in the world find their, their allies. They have, they have, Ways that their, their, their cause is forwarded by the tongue. Verse 6, he says, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. Your entire life and people's lives around you can be directed in an evil direction with just a few words. Verse 8, he describes it as a restless evil full of deadly poison. He, he wants you to, to hear a, a, a sound of a snake here. It's restless, it's slithering and it can strike with poison at the drop of a hat. Restlessness is a characteristic of Satan in the Bible. Um, 1 Peter 5, 8 describes him roar, uh, prowling around. Job 1, 7, the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the, Lord, uh, answered the Lord, saying, From going to and from on the earth and from walking up and down it. And uh, Jesus in Matthew 12, 48 speaks of an unclean spirit that was seeking rest but founds none. A tongue that is restless and is poisonous it is evil. That tongue is satanic. It is set on fire by hell itself. Verse six says, "We have a desire in our mouth sometimes that I just got to say this. I just got to get this out. We have this, this restlessness that we we can't we can't we can't hold it in. We got to get it out. We got to say the thing we're thinking, not realizing that it is like a, a cobra that strikes." letting poison out wherever it may hit. Perhaps you can think of times where where that cobra has struck you, where somebody's words have come at you with venom and they have pierced deep into your souls. And perhaps you can think of times where you have been the cobra, where you've been the one releasing venom into those around you. Proverbs 12, 18, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Your words can pierce deeper than a sword into somebody's life. Probably no greater lie than the little children saying, if sticks and stones can break my bones, the words will never hurt you. We all are, are wise enough now to recognize the lie that that is. Our words pierce far deeper than just broken bones. Do you see the power that your words have, and do you see the power that they have for evil, the ways they can destroy people's lives? If you're here and you're listening to this today, you're in church, so this is especially important for us because the next warning, the third warning he gives us, is that warning our tongues are hypocritical. Our tongues are hypocritical. Remember, James is writing to the church. He's writing to people who profess to be believers. And so if their tongues are really this destructive, he's saying, that's hypocrisy. That's not how things are supposed to be. James three nine. with our tongues we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Can you, can you put those things together? Just a moment ago we sang hallelujah, praise the one who set us free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You've broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. If you were participating today, those words just came out of your mouth. You just used that little few ounce muscle in your, in your mouth to say those words. Hallelujah is a, is a Hebrew word that means praise to the Lord. You, you used your mouth to say positive things about God, right things about God. God is worthy to be praised. You should be praising God with your mouth. That is a good use of your mouth. And yet, how many of us today will hardly get to our cars before snapping at our kids for running around and being destructive? <laughs> They should be disciplined. Don't get me wrong. I'm working on that. But how many times do we use our words that are biting to our kids? Maybe you'll make it to the car, but you won't make it past the four-way stop before you yell at somebody for the way they're approaching the four-way stop up here. Or maybe you'll get down the road, but you'll, you'll snap at the waitress for not bringing you what you asked for when you get to lunch today. Or maybe you'll make it past lunch, but you won't make it to bedtime without sharing something online that's posting some angry comment about some politician or something else that I'm sure they deserve to hear this, and I'm going to tell them about it. Or maybe you'll make it to bedtime, but you won't make it past 10 a.m. tomorrow before you criticize a coworker for them not carrying their job and doing what they said they were supposed to do last week. James is our doctor who, who asks us to say, Ah, stick out our tongue, and he's looking at your tongue. He's saying, wow, it's good. You're, you're praising God with your tongue. And, but then he's checking on you tomorrow at lunch, and he's like, say ah again. How'd you, how'd you use your tongue? Is this the same tongue I just saw? W- weren't you just saying hallelujah, and now you're saying this? He's saying this this ought not be so. Verse 10, from the same mouth come blessing and curse. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. I doubt many of us are tempted to outright curse God I'm sure in bad moments, we do want to say bad things about God. By, by curse here, the Bible's not talking about just using foul language, although that could be a type of, uh, of curse here. He's talking about speaking in a way that is demeaning, a way that is derogatory, a way that wishes ill on somebody else, a way that, that is not just truth and, and, and honesty, but a way that is, is ill-meaning. That's the kind of idea of curse here. See, not, not wishing good on somebody. How many times we, we, may not, we may not curse God, but we'll curse somebody we see on TV or curse somebody we drive past or we'll cuss a referee or an umpire. We'll use our words in biting, destructive ways. The same people who say hallelujah, we will turn and say that to other people. I, I imagine that if, if God himself, if you could see him and you could see that he was standing with you, you'd be less likely to do that. And yet James is pointing out here how, how ridiculous it is that we don't see him with us. Uh, imagine if you were in some city, maybe, maybe downtown in a college town, and, and you came across a statue for a, a college football coach. But this coach, you, you don't know nothing bad about him his character that you know of, but just he coaches for the wrong team, not your team, the team you cheer against. And so imagine as you come up to this, this statue, you start just wailing at this coach. You're dragging his name through the mud. You're speaking ill of him. You're just thinking, this guy, I mean, he's just awful. And you start just letting this statue have it. And you say all kinds of things against this coach you're looking at his statue. Imagine as you're doing that, you, you turn around and realize that the, the actual coach, the guy that's statue, he, he comes walking up and he heard everything you said. And all of a sudden you go pale. You're like, I never would have said that if I'd have known he was there. I wouldn't actually say this to his face. I was just willing to say it to a statue. James says every time we curse somebody else, we're doing that to God because people are made in the image of God. He says that from the same mouth come blessing and curse. And every time, verse, uh, verse 9, when we, with it we bless the Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness, in the image of God. Here's James, you know, almost to the end of our Bibles Quoting the very first page of our Bibles, Genesis 1:26 and 27, people are created in God's image. It's like we're cursing a statue of God Himself every time we speak in a way that's demeaning and derogatory toward another person. God has 7.8 billion statues in the world, and they all look different. They're all made to image forth God in a unique way. And when we curse them, we're cursing at God. He uses multiple images to, to, to make, how, make a point about how bad this is. He talks about in verse 11, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? If there's a spring from the ground, it's either going to be good water to drink or it's not. It won't go back and forth. It's not going to be good one moment, bad another. Springs of water don't do that. They're, they're one type of water coming out. Or if it's ruined, it's ruined permanently. You can't go back and forth. Verse 12, a similar idea, uses the idea of a, of a fig tree. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Closer to home, we wouldn't, come up, we wouldn't expect to come upon an apple tree and find one orange that it's accidentally produced somehow. That just wouldn't happen. You wouldn't go pick raspberries you know, at a farm this summer or this spring or something and, and accidentally stumble upon a peach that's grown in the middle of it. It just doesn't happen. A tree produces one type of fruit. It doesn't go back and forth. James, again, knows the teaching of his older brother, Jesus. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, Jesus said, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. I think what James is getting at is that we have to evaluate our words to figure out who are we? Who are we? Are we honest enough about the words we use to say this says something about my character. This says something about who I am if these are the kinds of words coming out of my mouth. The Bible has a whole lot to say about words. I'm convinced you could fill years worth of sermons just studying how we use our words throughout the Bible. Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up. Which way do your words go for people? Do they help them go up? Are they encouraging? Are they, are they building people up? Even if it's corrective, it can be uplifting. Or is it tearing them down? Verse 31: "Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Do, do your words tear? Are they ripping at people? Philippians 2:14, "Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Think of complaining. How many of us fill our whole lives with just complaining about from one thing to the other? And you know certain people that have certain reputations. They're always complaining about something. Are we using our words to be complaining or disputing? Are we argumentative? Every time somebody says something, oh, no, I don't think that. I think this. You just got to argue for the sake of arguing. I know I get in that mood sometimes. I just argue about stuff. My wife's like, if I just said this was purple, you just said it was green. Like, you're just going to argue. Are we just argumentative? Romans 1.29 and 30. Uh, speaks of people who are filled with all, means of, all manner of unrighteousness. And these are some of the people that make that list. People who are gossips, so talking bad about people behind their backs. Slanderers, tearing people down. People who are haughty or boastful, using your words to kind of build your own self up and build your own case. So over and over again, the Bible condemns ways that we use our words that are unholy, unrighteous. Colossians 4, 6 gives us in the positive direction. Let your speech Always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Man, can you, can you say that about your words, that they're always gracious? That's a pretty high standard. Do you always answer, even a harsh word, with a gracious word? To, to be honest, as we look at the Bibles, the way it calls us to use our words, we can affirm what James said in, in James 3 two. we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. It's wise for us to look at the, the kind of the average of our of our of our words. Last year, when we studied Proverbs, I remember talking about how if we could listen to our words as a soundtrack, if we could have our, our words played back to us so that we could hear them, it'd probably be pretty discouraging. It'd be discouraging if if all of our words were, were played back to us so that we could hear how we speak to our parent, or our kids, or to our parents, or to our co-workers. If you could listen to all of them, how, how, how would you hear them? But I think James, when he's making this point about the fruit, he, he's pushing a little deeper than just kind of the average or the, the overall sound of the way we use our words. If you came to a tree and found just one peach on it, just one, what kind of tree is it? It's, it's a peach tree. If you came to a, to a vine and you found just one grape on it, what, what, kind of, what kind of vine is it? It's a, it's a grapevine. You will know a tree by its fruits. Sometimes we think, oh, I'm generally a good person. But in this certain situation, these are how my words come out. And we excuse the one time. I wonder if in reality that one time is a little more true of our hearts than we'd like to admit. That one time is maybe a little bit truer, more honest about our hearts then we want to confess when are your words at their worst at their worst not just the average are you generally pretty good with your words when are they at their worst i tell you when i'm at my worst after about 10:30 pm actually no that's a lie after i've been asleep for two hours if you wake me up no less than that like an hour if i've been asleep for an hour and you wake me up which my kids for the last eight years have found many opportunity to try i'm at my absolute worst and you know what i, I mean some of that is just confusion and whatever but I, I, what, I'm, what I'm honest about, if I'm honest to myself, I think that's the moment where I have zero filter. I, I have said some pretty rough things to either my wife or to my kids in the middle of the night because I'm just, I got no filter at that point. I got no filter. But it, beyond just just the, the confusion of the middle of the night, sometimes it's the people closest to us, isn't it? Not because not, not anything bad's happening around us, but when we're just in a bad mood or something. And it's the people that are closest to us that we, we drop the filter. We, we, we are, as we have grown and matured in, in our ages, we've realized that you can't just always say what you think. Going, that's going to get you in trouble. And so we have learned, to, to some, some better than others, to filter out things that we want to say because we've learned that we need to treat people a certain way. But, but where's the moment where you drop the filter? Where who, who are you around that you are more likely to say a, a piercing word that you shouldn't have? You know what I think James by James, and following Jesus, who before him said, you'll know what true." are about. You know what I think he's saying? That, that shows your heart. That, that moment, we excuse that moment, but I think that moment actually shows our heart better than just the average. And here's why I think that. Jesus said, Matthew 12, 34, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We, when you don't have a filter and your heart just gets to speak directly, that tells us what's going on in our hearts. Listen, if you, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. Your heart, it's wicked. On its own, your heart is wicked. As I, as I studied through James, I almost, some people, when they preach through James, they'll, they'll do the whole chapter, because honestly, when you end at verse 12, it's pretty discouraging. James doesn't have this like uplifting, encouraging moment at the end of verse 12 to just say, hey, but here's some good things about your words. No, he's brutally honest, and he leaves it there with your tongue. He is honest about how dangerous and destructive and hypocritical our words can be. And that's because our hearts are that way. Our hearts are in desperate need of salvation. It's terrifying to think about the condition of our hearts when we realize there's, when there's no filter, how, how evil our hearts can really be. Romans 3:23, for all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3:12. For all stumble in many ways. How do we do that? If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. So I'm now going to invite everybody who's never stumbled in what they said to come up here and teach us about how to do that. There, n- nobody? Nobody? No. There's nobody. There's nobody. We have all fallen short. We have all stumbled in what we've said. There is nobody who's ever been perfect with their mouths aside from Christ himself. And that's because aside from Christ himself, all of us have a wicked heart and our hearts come out in what we say and it is wicked. You see, what we need is not just a a little course correction in the way we use our language. We don't need just a little bit of cleanup in the way we certain vocabulary we use, although we should do that, of course. We need a heart transplant. That's what we need. The only way our mouths are going to be changed is if our hearts are changed. Verse seven and eight, I think James gets starts pointing us toward where that's what that solution is. How we get there, he says. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. We've all seen well trained animals, right? We've seen a well trained horse, or you know, I've been my kids love the zoo. We've seen well trained gorillas, which is just incredible to me that you can take this massive animal and teach it to do certain things. We've seen, I've never seen it in person, but we've seen videos of even you know, snakes being trained by a flute that can do certain things. It's mind blowing to me. We can do all kinds of things with animals, but when it comes to our own tongue, he says no human being can tame the tongue. So I want you to hear this. This is, this is your, your take home point. So confess with your tongue. Confess that your tongue is humanly untamable. If we're going to begin to be transformed, we have to confess we can't do this on our own. Your tongue cannot be transformed. It cannot be tamed by you and you alone. If all you heard today from the message was, be better, use your words better, then you're going to fail by tomorrow. And it's going to be a useless message to you. You cannot tame your tongue. James is honest. You can't do it. But what's impossible with man is possible with God. The only way your tongue and my tongue can be transformed is if God himself transforms our hearts and then transforms our tongues. You can train your tongue to some degree. You could work really hard to say unique New York, unique New York. You could work really hard to get certain vocabulary out of your language to where you no longer use four-letter words. But you will not use your words for good and holy purposes unless God himself trains your heart. God, he's pretty good with words, if you haven't noticed. Very beginning, he spoke, let there be light. And you know what happened? Light came. God spoke and the sun existed. And stars, billions and billions of stars came into existence. God himself is the word. In the beginning was the word. Verse 14, that word, John 1, 14, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. God himself is the word and he transforms us by the word. And the way that we are transformed is if we confess with our mouths and our hearts how much we need him, the word. Romans 9, 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you can confess that you need a new mouth, and a new heart, that's the first step to your mouth being transformed. You can't tame it, but God can. God can. We have to get to the source. Years ago, my parents noticed some damage in their uh, the closet, and the, their carport. And they, what they could have done is, you know, just gone in there and, and just painted over some of the wood that looks like it was rotting. But you know what would happen if they did that is a few months later, the, the wood would just show rot. And they could just keep painting and keep painting and keep painting. You know what they did is they went in there and started taking things out and realized termites had gotten in behind and everything in that closet was ruined. You know the only way to solve that? Paint, not paint. They had to take everything out of there, everything out of there, treat it, and rebuild it from the beginning, from the scratch. They had tore it all the way back to the studs, even out some of the studs, tore it out, an incredible construction project. And they're very thankful for a termite bond, right? It, was, it had to go all the way back. It had to tear it out from the beginning. If you don't get to the source, a few coats of paint over the top are going to do nothing to touch it. You can, you can filter your words in front of certain people. You can come to church and sing hallelujah. You can do certain things around certain people. But if you never get to the source of your words, which is your heart, it's, the evil's going to come out eventually. Eventually, your heart is going to show itself. So you've got to get to the source. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Verse 29 says, "No, uh, uh, let no this is... Um, uh, let, let no corrupting talk comes out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who are here. I think it's Ephesians 4. Romans 10:15. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. When God transforms your heart, when He begins to change your life, your words that have been used for evil can now be used for good. They can now be used for good. God can take what is evil and destructive and now further His kingdom, further His mission, through the very same people who used to work against him. Paul was one of those people who was leading people, persecuting people, and then God turned him around to where he was using his words for good. Your tongue is powerful. Your tongue is destructive. Your tongue is hypocritical. So I, I want to give you a, maybe a, a backwards challenge or backwards application today. If you recognize that you're sinful, your mouth is sinful and, and that you, you are can at times be wicked and use your, your mouth for evil things. And if you've just kind of resigned yourself to that and think, I'm probably going to continue that. I know we're talking about it, and you, I hear you, Pastor, and I know it's in the Bible, but I'm just going to continue that. If you, if you resign yourself to that, I, I, have a, I have a favor. Don't sing our last song. Don't do it. I know it seems backwards, but if you are continuing in living a hypocritical life where you'll speak one way at church, and another way, wherever else you go, at, at least remove the hypocrisy. At least stop saying, stop singing the songs so that, so that maybe your ears will hear how weird it is for when you say all the negative, evil things. Maybe God would use the silence of your mouth to where your ears would pay attention to what's really coming out in the bad moments. But if you, like me, recognize, wow, I don't like the evil things that come out of my mouth, and I want to pursue God, then then come and sing this last song with all your heart. Sing it with all boldness, praying, God, I believe and help my unbelief. I need you to transform my heart so that my words would follow. I pray that you'll sing. I pray that you'll use your mouth for good because God can use you. God can use you for his kingdom. Be honest about the power. Be honest about the destruction so that he can change your life and use your words for his purposes.